Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Truly, we live in highly unusual times. But today, we secretaries and senior officials of the executive branch now come before you. Just one week after the enhanced community quarantine in Metro Manila and Luzon began, the President called Congress to a special session to consider the urgent passage of an Emergency Powers Act. And because the President had certified the proposed Emergency Powers Act as urgent, both houses of Congress met and passed in just one day an emergency powers law called the Bayanihan We Heal As One Act, or Republic Act 11469. Senate Bill 1418 is approved on third House reading. House Bill 6616 is approved on third reading. I'm Ted De, former Supreme Court spokesperson and now back teaching law at the University of the Philippines, the Ateneo de Manila, and the De La Salle University. And you're listening to Te Talks, where we talk about all things law and government. Our episode, Emergency Powers. This is part two of an ongoing series on the national emergency arising from the COVID-19 pandemic. And for this episode, we called two of my colleagues from the University of the Philippines College of Law, Dan Gatmaitan and Gwen Devera. Dan Gatmaitan is a professor who teaches constitutional law, local government, and legal method. Gwen Devera is a senior lecturer who teaches constitutional law and is practicing with a private law firm. Hi Gwen, hi Dan. Thank you for joining us in this episode. Hi, good afternoon. This is Gwen Devera from UP Law. Hello, this is Dan Ketmaitan from UP Law. So in a few words, how would you describe the new emergency powers law? We could do without it. Maybe we had a little bit more time to think through an emergency powers measure. Um, but to look at it more positively, um, I think what it offers is a way to organize kind of whole of government efforts in responding to the crisis. It addresses some of the critical areas from, of course, our health healthcare workers to individuals. Um, and as well as small and large businesses. Uh, what stands out for me in the Bayanihan Act is that it's looking really at like a two-pronged approach. Um, and then maybe final point. So one is to permit the president to sort of recalibrate the appropriations for purposes of redirecting resources to address the crisis. And the second one, it's not new. It's just that 
it's rather broad. They're also looking at criminal enforcement to ensure that the policies and steps that are, are taken will be followed. Okay, thanks, Gwen. Dan? In my view, a lot of the law is really unnecessary because we have existing laws that can be used by the president, which are already enforced. And uh, I do have uh, one problem with the provision on the budget and what the president is allowed to do. So my answer will be largely unnecessary and a little unconstitutional. I think you both pointed out, and many have pointed out, that many of these powers already belong to the president. What is the effect of Congress reiterating these powers that the president already has? Generally, none. At most, what I think this law does is bring us some comfort in that there is a agreement or concurrence in terms of the existence of a national emergency, not just a public health emergency. And it allows for two other constitutional and statutory consequences to follow as a result of that. So typically, what would follow that determination really are, if you look at past emergency legislation, maybe one, yung takeover. Number two, an authority to sort of interfere or intrude into the budgetary process beyond just budget execution. Because now the president can look at the appropriations and realign. Okay. Maybe one, one thing that uh, reiterating this powers that already are with the president in this particular law uh, would have would be to subject it to the three-month period? Is that an unintended consequence of this law? The ways to limit the effectivity of emergency powers is to ensure that the president doesn't uh, keep on holding on to these powers. There's a sunset clause. The three months. Or the period was can be determined by Congress. In this case, it's three months. So uh, if everything goes well, then the exercise of this power should be to terminate in three months or until Congress uh, withdraws its sooner or uh, upon adjournment of Congress. So hindi ito forever. Can we go to the spe- some of the specific powers in Section 4? And of course, Section 4H. Section 4H. Consistent with Section 17, Article 12 of the Constitution, when the public interest so requires, direct the operation of any privately owned hospitals and medical and health facilities, including passenger vessels and other establishments, to house health workers, serve as quarantine areas, quarantine centers, medical relief and aid distribution locations, or other temporary medical facilities, and public transportation to ferry health, emergency, and frontline personnel, and other persons. Provided, however, that the management and operation of the foregoing enterprises shall be retained by the owners of the enterprise, who shall render a full accounting to the president or his duly authorized representative, of the operations of the utility or business as basis for appropriate compensation. Provided further that reasonable compensation for any additional damage or costs incurred by the owner or the possessor of the subject property solely on account of complying with the directive 
shall be given to the person entitled to the possession of such private properties or businesses after the situation has stabilized or at the soonest time practicable. Provided, finally, that if the foregoing enterprises unjustifiably refuse or signify that they are no longer capable of operating their enterprises for the purpose stated herein, the President may take over their operations subject to the limits and safeguards enshrined in the Constitution. Is the one that I think a lot of people was watching very closely the power to direct the operation of any privately owned hospitals, medical and health facilities, which was granted under Section 17, Article 12. Many people followed the, the genesis of this particular section from the original palace draft to the, what is now in the law. Why do you okay, think what Dan and I are referring to here is the original draft of the Emergency Powers Law under Section 4, Paragraph 4. And it reads, When the public interest so requires, temporarily take over or direct the operation of any privately owned public utility or business affected with public interest to be used in addressing the needs of the public during the COVID-19 emergency as determined by the President, including but not limited to hotels and other similar establishments to house health workers, service quarantine areas, quarantine centers, medical relief and aid distribution locations, or other temporary medical facilities, and so on and so forth. Why do you think that the, uh, that the resulting provision took a step back? The original draft was a bit broad, I think. This one is a bit narrow. It was largely a response to the public uproar, no? uh, but I think we have to emphasize first that there is a, a constitutional basis for it, and in fact, the law cited Article 12, Section 17. I think the negative reaction was that it was so, so broad that it looked like the president could take over every business. But it's not, as some people suggested, they were going to take over manufacturing. Those are, have a public interest functions and the ones that we really need to address the emergency. The other section that many people also uh, monitored and saw the transformation is Section 6, which is the penalty clause, which is the provision that provides for penalties for violations. It initially started with, a, I think, a very plain, quite benign formulation and eventually morphed into a much more detailed itemization of, of prohibited acts. And, of course, I think two items that people were, are, are particularly discussing would be Section 6A on local governments and Section 6F. Can we talk about 6A? Section 6A. LGU officials disobeying national government policies or directives in imposing quarantines. It's a bit broad because it uses, it uses the word disobedience and then it refers to LGUs disobeying the national government. Uh, what do you think of this particular provision? Normally, yung mga emergency laws that we've seen in the past, they do have a penal clause that's quite general. Like any violation uh, or any breach of the provisions could be criminal in, in nature. But this particular law has a specific set of conduct that's considered to be 
criminal. And I'm not sure as a strategy for the nature of this crisis that this is sound. So in the management of this crisis, we may need law enforcement as well, not just our healthcare workers and other frontliners. Therefore, the entire response that we're forming to this crisis becomes vulnerable to inefficiency. Concerning for me is your inability to, to cascade information evenly, even among our law enforcers. And the example I'd like to give is a few days ago, may lumabas na parang advisory na meron lang certain windows that individuals with a quarantine pass can leave their homes. And it bore the insignia or the logo of the of our law enforcement agencies. Later, the PNP came out with an advisory saying false information. But it's possible that in some areas where that information has not been cascaded properly or thoroughly, you have law enforcers acting on the false information. And then just for 6A, this is where I think language is so important. One is it actually only refers to LGU officials, not the LGU. So I'm not sure what the implication is. And number two, the law also says that for officials, and employees of the government, they may suffer additional penalty of perpetual or temporary disqualification from office. I'm not sure if there is some political motivation behind including that as a penalty, considering that when we triumph over this crisis, we are going to see elections in 2022. Okay, thanks. Dan? Actually, uh, I, will, uh, I will take it easy on the government on this point. Uh. Because even before this emergency started, the law already allows the national government to supervise local government units when there is an emergency. I would think what the government is concerned with here is that because of the nature of the emergency, we need to have a consistent, coordinated approach. Then we cannot have quarantines in one city and then no quarantine in the other. What they're thinking here is that you know, we need to act in a concerted way. And one might point out that ang, ang limitation here really only has to do with policies or directives in imposing quarantines. Now, kung if you want to look at the glass as half full, then you could say it doesn't prevent local government units from being created and coming up with their own solutions to help in the in addressing this, this emergency. Of course, hindi mo rin maisip na this can be subject to abuse, right? as Gwen pointed out. And elections are coming up soon, and this could be used as a way to disqualify certain officials from running for office. Let's talk about 6F. That's the other provision that many people have been discussing. And of course, 6F talks about creating, perpetrating, or spreading false information regarding the COVID-19 crisis on social media and other platforms where such information has no valid or beneficial effect on the population clearly geared to promote chaos, panic, anarchy, fear, confusion. And, of course, some of the words that came out, you know, chilling effect, vague, overbroad, violation of uh, freedom of expression, freedom of the press. So, what's your take on 6F? One, it's, it, one I think it, the intention was to make it broad. But in making it broad, at least from my perspective, it actually sows confusion as to what exactly the law is trying to 
prohibit or regulate vis-a-vis the current crisis. One, for example, it refers to both individuals and groups. I think we know how difficult that is in terms of criminal prosecution too. I think it is also redundant because we do have laws in place which we may use to actually prosecute certain conduct uh, that are already considered to be criminal in nature. From the criminal side, well, 6F is problematic because it does not define what false information is. It adds uh, a confusing element that even though this is supposed to be a special law and therefore you don't need criminal intent, in 6F, it adds a, an additional element that implies criminal intent because it says it must be clearly geared to promote chaos, panic, anarchy, fear, or confusion. Think, even the prosecutors are finding it a bit difficult to figure out how to determine probable cause. But yeah, that's from the criminal criminal law point of view. Just have a few more points. Okay, Section 7. Section 7. Construction or Interpretation. Nothing herein shall be construed as an impairment, restriction, or modification of the provisions of the Constitution. In case the exercise of the powers herein granted conflicts with other statutes, orders, rules, or regulations, the provisions of this Act shall prevail. It reiterates that, uh, of course, that the Constitution remains uh, supreme. Uh, Nothing shall be construed as an impairment, restriction, modification of the provisions of the Constitution. I think there was some confusion here, maybe because of the way it was written. Uh, But from how I read it, it appears that in the first sentence, the Constitution is affirmed as being supreme over everything in this Act. But in the second sentence, it appears to say that this Act, at least for three months, shall be supreme over every other law which would conflict with this act. Dan, you also teach legal method. I'd like to hear your comments on this. Actually, um, I was surprised. I assumed that what Congress meant was that this law being the latter law, plus the fact that it's an emergency measure, in the event that it, it is in conflict with the prior statute, then it should prevail. But what people kept on asking was whether Congress said that it will prevail over the Constitution. There is no universe where that's going to be valid, right? In other words, no matter what the emergency is, Congress can never enact a measure that will prevail over the Constitution. And perhaps it could have been written in a better way. But I think it only means that if it runs into conflict with a statute, or uh, implementing rules, then this latter law will, will prevail. I, I asked that, Dan, because I think in the previous version, there was a version that said that after this law ceases to be effective, all of the previous laws that have been affected by this law will automatically resume. So the implication, I think, was that there was like a re- mass repeal of all laws that, that were in conflict with this particular law. <laughs> and again, what we're referring to here is Section 9 of the original proposed bill submitted by the palace to Congress. And Section 9 reads, This act shall take effect upon its publication in a newspaper of general circulation 
or in the official gazette and shall be in full force and effect for only for two months or longer if the calamity will persist without prejudice to the powers that the President may continue to exercise under the Constitution or other laws, provided further that the powers granted under this Act may be withdrawn sooner by means of a concurrent resolution of Congress or ended by presidential proclamation. All laws repealed, whether expressly or impliedly, by virtue of this act shall automatically be revived within 15 days upon withdrawal of the herein emergency powers of the president or the lifting of the state of calamity on account of COVID-19, whichever is earlier. And that would explain why some people are panicking. Why they're panicking so much. You know, it cannot. It cannot prevail over the constitution. Plus, Temporary I don't think the constitution intended an emergency measure to prevail way after the, the emergency has terminated. All right. I only have one more question. This was actually asked of me. You know, I wanted this to come from two constitutional law professors. Someone actually messaged me and says, in light of the emergency powers law now and in light of what's going on, can you please explain what this means? The Bill of Rights is not a suicide pact. Is it okay if Dan goes first? <laughs> no, yes, Dan, go. Madaya. That phrase has been used to express the view that we're not going to protect individual liberties to the point that we harm society. In other words, even the framers of the Constitution understood that there might be times when we can be called upon to sacrifice rights. That's the reason why there are travel restrictions now. Right, right to travel, it's not absolute. And in times of emergencies, these rights can be curtailed. Okay. Uh, Gwen. Okay. The reason I asked Prof. Dad to go ahead is because I actually have an interesting story. So I actually first encountered it in a class with primarily American students. And they are familiar with the phrase from their constitutional law courses. So, But the interesting debate in that class was, I think, there are some uh, in, the, in the class who believe that it's actually a second layer to uh, the understanding that the Bill of Rights are not absolute. There are situations where, very put simply, that for the sake of preserving a democratic government, public good or public welfare, those rights are not only subject to limitation, but may actually be suppressed entirely. Uh, but certainly, even with regard to the existing emergency, I'm hoping that we would still look to understanding our Bill of Rights as simply subject to limitation uh, and not outright suppression uh, of any of those rights. That's a great, great way to end uh, the discussion. <laughs> Salamat! Thank you! Dan and Gwen, thank okay. you! Again, this is Ted Day, reminding everyone to stay at home and stay safe. This episode is powered by Puma Podcast. Listen to TED Talks on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Should you have any topics on law and government that we haven't discussed yet, or you want to hear about, let us know at the Puma Podcast and TED Talks Facebook pages. 
This episode was produced by Kat Ventura and edited by Nico Bolante with help from Mark Casillian. Special thanks to Trisha Aquino for playing the part of Lady Justice. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.